This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Waltons, Nutrisource Pet Foods, Aluma Trailers, and by Onyx Hunt. My guest today is John Sullivan, a lifelong upland bird hunter that has pushed his limits by hunting wild birds up in the mountains for nearly 40 years. John also happens to be one of my biggest critics, but that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Stick around and you'll find out why. Hunting season might be over, but that doesn't mean it's time to mope around the house and hang your head. That's because it's meat season. Now is a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has everything but the meat. That's their motto. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. Plus, they have an online community called Meatgistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host today and pretty much every day. Brandon Morton sitting next to me. Brandon, I appreciate all of the work you do to produce this show and to make everything happen, even when our guests are on uh, in another state across the country. It sounds like they're right there with us, so I appreciate you. Yes, guests from Oregon, not Oregon. Oregon. I always mess that up. <laughs> I don't know, maybe because like in in grade school it was the oregon, oregon. trail yep. <laughs> you remember playing that game yep. did you ever play that oh totally i still do actually do you really <laughs> yeah for sure yeah i got an app on my phone it's 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 the same it's just as fun really yeah. oh my gosh i want to play that sometime <laughs> i feel like yes i mean like you didn't somebody lost what, what were some of the things that you faced like dysentery dysentery <laughs> yeah. was totally one of them yep yep uh, letting the cattle die as another okay. one of them yep yep yeah you get to get out hurt. i always like to get out and hunt Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, that's the best part of Oregon Trail. Yeah. For sure, is the hunting. Our guest today, John Sullivan. John, have you ever played the Oregon Trail? No, I haven't. What? You are missing out on one of the finest things in life. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to connect you with the Oregon Trail. But it should... It, see, that's that's where we... Oregon we, Trail. Oregon Trail. They didn't call it the Oregon Trail. John, you, you're from where exactly? Redmond, Oregon. I'm east of the Cascades. All right. Well, we appreciate you making time for us today. It's going to be an exciting conversation. Uh, I mentioned off the top of the show that you have quite a bit of experience hunting upland birds. I didn't mention, though, that you have a lot of experience training dogs. We're going to get into a lot of that discussion because there's reasons why. Uh, But before we do, I have some information that I want to share with you in this last few weeks, I've been doing regular flush facts, which I find kind of interesting. I think our listeners hopefully have as well. So today's flush fact, uh, John, you can partake in this as well as Brandon. Which dog breed was named the AKC, American Kennel Club's most popular dog breed in America for the year 2022? I know this one. Dude, I know. Bulldog. Oh, oh. <laughs> John, what's your guess? 
I knew that. <laughs> you knew that too? Okay, yes. so yes, for the first time in history, 2022, the French Bulldog took the number one spot. This ends the Labrador Retriever's 31-year reign as the most popular dog breed in America. How did you guys know the answer to that? The internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just heard it on, a, on another, on a newscast or something. On a newscast. Ah, all right. Well, the French Bulldog has moved into the number one position after climbing the ranks in popularity over the last 10 years. In 2012, the Frenchie was ranked at number 14. Since then, registrations have increased by over 1,000%, bringing this playful breed to the top. French Bulldogs held the number two spot in 2021, breaking the lab's top dog status of over three decades is no small feat. The Frenchie is a smart, compact breed, and they can fit into various different lifestyles. Perfect for people all across the country. This petite dog was first recognized by the AKC in 1898. They're beloved by everyone from families to single owners for their charming and adaptable nature. They have surged in popularity in cities across the country since their small size and generally quiet demeanor make them good fits for apartments and smaller homes. There we have it. Um, let's, let's do a couple of other dogs since I have this information up right now. Any guess where the German short-haired pointer ranked in 2022? Right behind the lab. What number are you going to guess? Next. You're going you're gonna to go three? Yep. The German short-haired pointer ranked 10. 10, yes. Okay, how about English setter? I mean, okay, John? 14. 93. 93. <laughs> English, po- how about an English pointer or just pointer? John? 82. 107. Right? Yeah, the, and I don't have this in front of me anymore. I already closed out, but I believe the AKC recognizes uh, 200 different dog breeds, or maybe it's over 200 dog breeds right now. Anyway, we'll keep digging into some more factual information as we move along because it's quite interesting, actually. Um, and the favorite breeds in America aren't necessarily the favorite breeds in other countries, which I also find fascinating. All right, John, you have been on other podcasts in the past. You've taken a little bit of a hiatus and you're coming out of retirement because you're still in retirement to join us on today's show. We appreciate that. We're going to let people get to know a little bit more about you with a quick rapid fire segment. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. I'm going to... I'm going to ask a question. First thing that comes to mind, you shoot it out, okay? Okay. All right. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Nothing. Nothing. Name of your first dog? Snooper. Snooper. Breed of your first dog? Uh, Mongrel. (laughs) First upland bird you ever shot? Chucker. The first song you play when you leave for a hunting trip? First time I quite didn't quite get the question. First song that you play on a hunting trip. Uh, I don't much listen to music. I listen to uh, books on tape and so forth. Okay. Name of your next dog. You can say Butch and move on if you want. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Favorite shotgun? 12-gauge Beretta 303. 
can only hunt with one dog breed the rest of your life. Which one are you taking? German Shorthair Pointer. German Shorthair Pointer. A tool you always take with you in the field. What do I always take with me in the field? A tool that you always take with you in the field. Oh, the T-Post Stepper. Ooh, there you go. Uh, favorite bird to hunt? Chucker. Least favorite bird to hunt? Gamble's quail. Mm, interesting. You can only hunt with one person for the rest of your life. Who are you taking into the field with you? I always hunt alone, so this is very <laughs> difficult. Yes, I know. I knew it when I asked it. Uh, Joe Dolan. Who is it? Joe Dolan. And who is Joe Dolan? Good friend of mine. All right. <laughs> Well, there we have it. That wraps up our rapid fire segment. You mentioned Chucker. How many years have you been hunting for those birds? I just completed my 39th year. 39 years. May I ask how old you are, sir? I'm 78. 78. And do you feel like you still have the step on them today that you had when you started? I mostly. I can't hunt as long as I used to, Okay. but uh, I, I think I do as well. So is it that you've just learned a lot over the course of your lifetime hunting for those birds that you can get into the right places easier? I'm not sure I get into the right places easier. I, uh, I have learned where to hunt, and... Unfortunately, my memory doesn't allow me to remember all the places that I've hunted, but uh, I've learned the tactics of the bird. What is it about that bird that keeps you coming back again and again, despite how challenging it is to reach them? Number one, the physical challenge. Uh, number two, the difficulty of hunting the bird. Explain the difficulty to somebody that's never hunted it before. Let's say they've only hunted pheasants in the Midwest. Well, a typical day involves covering as many miles as you can and usually at least 2,000 feet of vertical, sometimes more. And they live in rocky, high country. And your footing is always <laughs> can always be a potential problem. If you're going in to flush the birds, you're stepping over rocks, sagebrush, whatever, and uh, you don't have exactly a perfect stance when you're able to shoot at the bird. Uh, in your nearly 40 years now of, of hunting them, do you have any scary moments that you kind of, like this this can happen or accidents that have happened up there in the mountains that you can share? Uh, yeah, none about me, mostly about the dogs. Uh, I, I worry about rattlesnakes a lot earlier in the season. And one time in November, it got extremely hot. My dogs went on point and back on a hillside and I came up close and there was a big opening under rocks and the buzz of many rattlesnakes was present mm -hmm. and needless to say we got out of that area in a hurry what's your when, when that happens do you physically go up and grab the dog off point or how do you get them out of there without putting yourself or the dogs 
in any more potential danger? I, in this case, I grabbed the collar and pulled the lead dog away. Got it. Got it. Um, any accidents where the dogs tumble? I know, you know, the, the footing, like you mentioned, can be very unstable up there. Um, have you ever experienced injury to any of your dogs? No, I haven't. Um, my dogs are so used to the country that uh, I will never shoot at a bird when it goes over a ledge or a canyon that, that they can't get down. But um, they're pretty cautious. They learn the country. But how do they learn the country? At some point, they have to experience it for the first time. Is there things that you can do to prepare a dog for that, or they just have to learn it on their own? In my case, they just have to learn it on their own. And, and I'm very cautious with a young dog when we're in, you know, country like that. Gotcha. This season, was it a good season for you? Did you have a lot of success and were bird numbers high? <laughs> That'd be a big, big negative. Um, Why? Why? What changed? What happened? The weather. <clears throat> I can't hunt in fog. I got fogged out a few times. I'm at my age. I, I don't feel good in snow on side hills and downhills. So because of that, I have to avoid some of the snowy conditions that I used to hunt in. And with the combinations of those things this year, I only got in 21 days of hunting. Hmm. Why can't you hunt in fog? Uh, my dog's range way too big. Do you not have them on GPS? Oh, I do. I do. How big do they range? Up to a mile. Okay. So is it that you just, I mean, because... I've hunted up in the mountains for chucker and fog before, and it's like, I mean, it's out of this world, actually. I mean, it's, it's hard to really explain what that's like to being up there. I feel like you're in the clouds, really. Um, but I feel a sense of safety, especially with the dogs, because of, one, I can run my position on offline maps on Onyx, so I know where I am. And I know where my dog would be. I've got that safety as well. Do you use both of those when you're up there? And why is it that you wouldn't want to continue the hunt despite not being able to see them with your eyes? The terrain in the fog, all that uphill and downhill, and I'm trying to keep track of two or three dogs, and they can be a long way away from me. And it's just way too much trouble. You, you talk to, I don't think I know of anyone that chucker hunts in the fog. Really? Okay. Yeah, it's, for when, when we go out on assignment to try to document an adventure, we, we pretty much are limited to, you know, a couple of days. And unless the weather is so extreme, we document a hunt in whatever elements we're up against. We don't really have the luxury to say we're going to wait a day or two to go back. So most of the time, our adventures end up being, the weather ends up being a big part of the story. And it definitely leads to unsuccessful hunts quite often, but that's, that's part of it. I suppose if you're there, you know, and the weather is what it is, you say, I'm going to, I'm going to go tomorrow. So I, I get that. Um, my experience, you know, is, well, 
we might as well just jump right into it right now, John, is that, like I said, when we're out there, the things that we come up against are always unpredictable. And when I say that, um, it, it's, I'm hunting with people that I've never hunted with before. I'm hunting in places I've never been before. I'm hunting with dogs that I've never met before. And sometimes the scenario plays out in ways that I think you would probably say, I don't want any part of that. Um, because like you mentioned, you hunt by yourself. But I don't have that luxury. And sometimes that leads me into situations that has led us into you and I having, a, I don't know, I'd say a, a fairly regular back and forth. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. By email. Yes. Mm -hmm. What? I guess I just, I'm curious and I love the Upland world because I feel like it's a, it's a very close community. I do have regular conversations by email, by messages on both Instagram and Facebook. Um, you know, and then when we get together at, you know, like Pheasant Fest, people come up and it's just this like, it's a, it feels like we know each other, even though I don't know some people, but John, I'm, I'm wondering, what is it that inspires you to want to reach out to me and provide feedback or information? And in some cases, some pretty good tongue lashing, <laughs> harsh criticism. I think it's my feelings. Now, I don't want to, to, to say I don't care about you, but in most cases, it's my feelings for the dogs. Okay. Explain that. Well, I know if, if somebody makes a mistake with a dog and allows it to do things that it shouldn't do and that later on it needs to be corrected, that sometimes those corrections are not pleasant for the dog and there's overreaction and it's just not good. Yeah. Well, I've learned, oh my goodness, have I learned a lot in my short career trying to work with my dog and help her out i've learned by mistake i will say i'll admit to that um i have thick enough skin to say yes i make mistakes and when you reach out i respond every time i don't think i've not responded have i no you have responded <laughs> some of them have been probably some people might not have responded do you care if i if i our listeners an example of a message that you have sent me no that's fine <laughs> okay here we go travis if i'm wait let's see let's pick this one travis i can't believe you allowed a flushing dog to run right by daisy when she was on point why in the hell are you hunting a green pointing dog with a flusher plus both dogs were out chasing birds they flushed and you just stood by and smiled you are well on your way to owning a flushing pointer. Get help and advice from pointing dog trainers, John Sullivan. There was no love, John Sullivan. There was no sincerely John Sullivan. And mind you, I don't, I've not met you yet, John. So when I get these kind of messages, I'm like, damn, John. <laughs> oh. But I will say, you also send nice messages as well. So they're not always negative messages, but that particular email came on September 7th, 2021, and what you were referencing there was a video that went up, I believe, on the Flush uh, Facebook page, just a handheld um, 
video from a cell phone at the end of the hunt that we were on in Montana. My dog, who is a very young dog, was on point, and a flushing dog came running right up, bumped her, flushed the birds off of her point, and they took off running. Now, I'm, you don't see in the video is me stopping my dog, trying to stop her to bring her to a stop. At that point in the training process, I was not allowing her to chase the birds anymore. She already had the desire in there. But what you pointed out, John, is something that at the time, I didn't know the damage that I was doing. You did know, and you were correct. You were well on your way to owning a flushing pointer. I spent the rest of that season trying to prevent my dog, who is a big running dog that will go out a mile if I would let her, but she also wanted to flush those birds because she thought, oh, that's what we're doing there. But you were spot on in your observations, John, and I won't read any of the other emails that you have sent to me, but um, I've referenced, not by name, but some of the... Uh, feedback that you've given in previous podcasts on the show. I don't know, do you ever pick up on that, the references to your messages when I talk about them on the show? I just feel that you're probably, I, I thought you probably got a lot of messages <laughs> in that regard and uh, that I was among them. Yes. Well, so I know you just said that you are, you, you care for the dog. Um, but I don't know that I, I, I think, you know, I get a lot of messages from our, from our viewers and, and listeners and, you know, people have a lot of different opinions and things like that. But um, you do a very good job. And I read this one because it was pretty short. Some of your other messages, you do a pretty good job of explaining why I've made a mistake and some of the things that have happened. And in response, I say, you know, um, every once in a while, I'm put in a position I don't want to be in. Sometimes, you know, by having my dog in the field, I was being selfish because I, I just really wanted to hunt with my dog, which I think a lot of bird hunters would agree. They go hunting because of their dog in some way, shape, or form. They want their dog to be a part of it. But what I've learned in the process with a very green dog, a very young dog still learning, is the effect that that can have when my selfishness takes her into the field when it's not the best scenario for her to be out there. If there are flushing dogs and um, too much going on for me to really handle her. So I've definitely learned a lot about it. But I've also had a lot of people say, well, I don't have that much time in a season. I want my dog to be out there. What, what do you say to them, to, those, to that response? I, I have to believe you heard that response before. It's not just me. I've not only heard that response, but I know there are a great number of pointy dog owners out there that they're family people, they have a job, they don't have that many days to go hunting, and when they want to go out there, they want to kill birds. So I, I, I have sympathy for that situation but I tell them they're going to own that dog for up to 12 or 14 years and if you want to successfully hunt year after year 
you have to do some serious training that first few years. So then it leads me to wonder, John, because you've got a lot of this wisdom and I respect it, um, which is why I respond every time you, you send a message and I've learned from it. You've not been wrong at any point. So I've deserved a lot of this. Um, and I guess I, I, I know that I didn't come out of the womb with all these, with all the answers and with all this knowledge. How did you get to the point where you have all this knowledge with dogs and training them? Well, now, don't get me wrong. I am not a professional dog trainer. Um, but just through the experiences with, I've, I've taken 13 hunting dogs through their full lives and training with friends. And I was an AKC field trial horseback competitor for many years. So I had to break dogs steady to wing and flush. So I would say it's with all of my experience. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. How many mistakes can you go back to that you've made, that you've learned from, that you've now passed along? For instance, talking about hunting my young dog with a flusher. Countless. <laughs> but the thing is, you didn't have anyone with a camera recording all of your mistakes <laughs> to show the rest of the world. Which is why right. I open myself up for this kind of criticism, which I will say most people, and, and I laugh about it, John, I, I hold no, you know, like when I get your messages, I'm like, oh, I see who is sending it. And I'm like, okay, brace yourself, Travis. You know, I give myself a little pep talk, pep talk to see where this one's going to go. I really have put myself in a position to be beaten up. And I, most people just move on with their day. They say, idiot. And they move on, you know, but you go out of your way to send the information, your thoughts to me. Why? My feelings for the dog. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get, <laughs> let's get into this conversation about helping the dog then, because I am not the only one that makes these kind of mistakes. And I have now found it to be rather fascinating how quickly you learn from your own mistakes, but how detrimental they can be. I am in a position where I do get to spend a lot of time out in the field. Not everybody can, can spend 50 
60, 100 days in the field with their dog to work through these kind of things. Some people only have that one weekend or that one trip each year where they drive 12 hours and they hunt for five days in North Dakota, and that might be basically it for the year other than a game farm hunt here and there in, you know, Ohio or something like that. So they don't have the chance to really work through some of these mistakes that they make, and it just snowballs, and over the course of the lifetime, that becomes the MO for their dog. Um, I've now worked through some of these mistakes, and it took a lot of work. You were spot on about making it more lengthy and difficult in future hunts when these mistakes happen. Um, How do we help people to avoid them? Like, what is the best in your mind? I mean, you can't, like, I could tell you, I could tell somebody, don't do this. Don't take your dog with if there's another dog out there in the field and risk it. But they say, that's my only hunt of the year. I, I want to. I want to see what my puppy can do. I would say maybe they ought to own a flushing dog. <laughs> but they don't, John. They don't own a flushing dog. They own what they own, and it's too late. They can't go back. They've made the decision. I've got a German short hair pointer. You see things so clearly because you've lived it for so long, but they haven't yet. If I explain to them the whys and the, the future consequences, <laughs> I feel that that's all they need to know. Okay, take us to your first dog. Explain, or maybe it doesn't even have to be your first dog. You get a puppy. You bring this puppy home. I'm pretty sure you're getting a German Short Hair Pointer, right? Right. Okay, and why a German Short Hair Pointer? I think it's just because of the looks. I like their looks. I like the style on most of them and their intensity, and I like the short hair because it's easy to care for in the house. I like the short tail because it doesn't knock things off the shelves <laughs> in the house and so forth. <laughs> what about their hunting style? I, you know, I judged many, many uh, AKC field trials, including national championships, and I've seen all breeds of pointing dogs. And believe me, I realize there are outstanding dogs in every breed. It's just that I started with German short hairs, so I'm sticking with them because I like them. Fair enough. I've hunted with a variety of dogs, and German short hair pointers rank way up on the list. I mean, 50% of my dog is a German short hair pointer, just so happens. The other 50% is a, is a, is a fur missile that's an English setter. So. <laughs> but I'm with you. I like a dog that will get out there and go find the birds and one that has that drive to get out there. I've learned that harnessing that drive is, is something that is challenging, but also very rewarding. Let's go into the dog training method that you choose. Is there one in particular that you've settled on to work best for you? As long as there are plentiful wild birds and I'm going to get a lot of days of hunting in contact with those wild birds, I found that if you have a well-bred dog, that mostly all it takes is experience. Um, my, my, uh, my first two dogs had, I just put them on wild birds and they started doing the right thing. I had enough advice to realize I'm not going to shoot at birds they flush or whatever, but, uh, 
that's that has been my style and I have found that when I'm starting a young dog if I get into the field with lots of wild birds and they're hunting behind two veterans uh, they not only learn how to find birds and I realize if I hunted them by themselves they might learn to find wild birds sooner um, earlier in their lives uh, they not only do that they back when they start backing at a young age they back for life and they back with style and it's something you don't have to worry about um, uh, those are the advantages and I, I had to do some corrections with a couple of dogs um, and they flushed a few wild birds early in their careers but I just have not had to do much in the way of corrections when you get that dog out there early on and they flush birds they chase them what is what's your response to that their first year absolutely nothing okay all that first year is for developing their enthusiasm so you let them run how far have they run oh not necessarily flushing birds, but they ranged up to a half mile that first year. So I've had my dog uh, that first year where the people have said, nope, can't do any wrong. You want to build that up. Well, okay. Now when your dog runs more than a mile in pursuit of that bird and then loses signal, uh, it, it quickly takes the joy out of a hunting experience with a dog who is just wants to run away as far away from you as possible. At some point, <laughs> I had to make a decision that's not okay. You can't keep doing that and had to put an end to that. But you say, no, you let them go? Yeah, and I never had an experience where they ran that far uh, chasing a bird or they didn't come back and find me. I spend a lot of time with the dog before I take them hunting uh, out on runs in all kinds of country. And I realize there's more independence in some dogs than you would like. In fact, I have two right now that are that way. And uh, I've just been able to deal with it. How do you deal with it? Explain that. I just keep going and hope they come back. And if <laughs> it takes me an hour to find them, I find them. And when I find them, I praise them. I don't give them any kind of uh, negative feedback. And that's so that reinforces that. The part that you're reinforcing positively is that they came back to you, right? Yep. Yep. At what point in a, re like in a correction process, how much time do you believe that you have when a dog makes a mistake that you can correct them and they understand what they're being corrected for? I know I've heard it, and this is by people who know a great deal more about dog training than I do, that you have less than a second. Um... Uh, whether it be uh, an electric collar or whatever, that's very difficult to do. And I found out that, for instance, if I have two do a dog pointing and backing and the third dog back there or the second dog moves in, tries to move up before I can walk in and flush the bird, I go back, take them by the collar and set them back where they were. Now I know that's not necessarily the best form of timing, but that's all I had to, to work with. How long would you let the dog stand there? Until I flushed the bird. No, but I mean, let's say you brought the dog back 
in a scenario like you said where you you brought the dog and made him stand there i've i've done that before and i just like i'll you know i it's like guys i need to stop here we need to let the i want my dog to just think for a second about what happened give give her some time to understand nope that was a no <laughs> i don't want to do that again could be 10 minutes i'm not exaggerating there it could be more than that just stand there and let them think because they're pretty smart creatures right okay so you mentioned that you take the dogs out and they learn by a lot of experience i've heard a lot of people say that birds make a dog and i've seen that happen i've like i said i've been fortunate that I have taken my dog on a lot of hunts. She has seen probably thousands of birds at this point in her young life. She just turned three, and I consider her an adult, and I hold her responsible to all of her actions at this point. Um, but when you say you take your dog out there and they have to learn, I guess I think a lot of people are very nervous about that, John. If they're being honest, they're nervous about letting that dog go out. Um, and they have to, at some point, let the dog go go run. But there are horror stories out there of dogs that ran and didn't come back. Did you ever have that experience? I have not had that experience, but I I know people that have. And that's not been something that you've been concerned about, huh? No. I- well, I'm concerned when it happens, when the dog's gone for a long time and they're a long way from me. Yeah, I'm very concerned. So is there, I think your relation, I mean, if I'm guessing, and maybe I'm wrong here, but you've spent so much time with the dog prior to that. You've built up such a strong relationship. Do you focus on foundational training before you even think about going hunting? Oh, yes. Um, nothing extensive, but recall is prime. And uh, I think one of the greatest tools that, that I've been able to use for the past 15 years or 12 or however many years we've had the e-collars with the tone on them is that uh, when I'm teaching here, I use the tone in, in conjunction to that. And before they're a year old, they know that that tone means come back here. Anything else that you work on with them other than just being with you? I, you know, they. I use the kennel command when I'm putting them in a crate, and I, I use it when I put them in the outdoor, outdoor dog kennel and things like that, but I don't teach heel um, or any of that, you know. I'm fascinated by that because I, I'd look at almost all training methods and there's some, you know, people have differences of opinion as to when they start training the foundation, but no doubt they, there are certain things stay, come to me, go with me. I mean, those are pretty common in the hunting dog training world, but you're, you're not implementing all of those. Well, when when I go out there with uh, three dogs and, and the, the youngest dog is new, I, I haven't taught that dog, whoa, but every hunt is started the same way. And that is, I whoa the other dogs, and then I give a whistle, double whistle blast to send them off. 
And I do exactly the same thing. I have five acres that are fenced. So when the dogs are in here, they can't get away. And every day, I start them in a loop around my five acres, around the outside. And I do it by whoaing the dogs and blasting them off with a whistle. And even though I haven't taught that young dog the command whoa, it sort of automatically carries over. At what point in their growth do you see it really start to stick for them? The second year of hunting. Okay. Now, do you do the exact same thing? I mean, in the dog's world, you you blow that whistle. They're going to work up there, right? For sure. How do you differentiate that when you're not hunting them at home? Or if a bird happened to, I assume if a bird happened to fly into that five acres and land, they're going to lock up on point on that as well, right? Yeah, but the, it's, it's, a, it's just like the whoa command. Whoa command has nothing to do with birds. Whoa means stop and don't move. And when I use the double whistle to send them off, that has nothing to do with birds. That just means we're on a run. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've been told, don't give a command you can't reinforce. How do you reinforce your woe command? That command is given to the other two dogs. It's not given to the dog that's supposed to be backing them or starting that way. So, you're so a, you have a unique situation because you have multiple dogs, and they're all teaching this young pup um you know if you didn't have you thought about maybe back to before you had adult dogs that obeyed what you would do in that scenario if you had a puppy yeah and and i wouldn't i probably wouldn't worry about the whole command in the yard the first year uh i just start the dog off and you know with the double call the dog over towards me and use the double whistle blast i guess but um, I, I wouldn't worry about reinforcing the dog staying on point until the second year of hunting. Okay, so I've obviously made a lot of mistakes. You've seen quite a few of them, John. Um, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see other people make in the field with their dogs? I think other than what I <laughs> suggested you correcting, uh, hunting with a flushing dog, uh, number two, when that dog is in its first year, shooting at a bird that was flushed by the dog. That's an absolute no-no. And I guess the other common mistake is giving a command more than once, giving it multiple times. Your dog has run off and you say, here, it doesn't come back. If you've taught the command, reinforce it somehow. If you haven't taught it yet, don't say it again. If that dog's running out there and you consent, continue to say, here, 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 that dog learns, hey, that means I can keep running out here. Mm-hmm. So those are, you know, those are the big mistakes. You well, know, I feel like that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Don't give a command that you can't reinforce, which is what I've learned. And I would, I would piggyback on that, too. I mean, what, where I've grown, I think, in the last two and a half years since I've had this dog of mine here that has pushed me beyond 
any of my capabilities that I ever thought possible. Um, was just like if I could go back and do so much of this over again, I would. And this is what I'm trying to do now is help friends that have dogs. I'm trying to tell them, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And yeah, I mean, those are all, those are all things. But I look at them when I'm explaining this, John, and sometimes I can see in their eyes, yeah, maybe. You know, they don't fully get it yet. And part of me is like, you stubborn bastard. You're going to have to go through this just like I did. You know, I, I wanted to have my dog out there in the field and I know darn well, they're going to want their first bird dog to be out there in the field this fall when we go. And I can already predict some of the things that are probably going to go wrong for them. And they're going to do it despite the advice that I give them. And partly part of me says they need to, they need to go through these mistakes in order to really understand why they shouldn't do it and they won't do it again. Um, so I, I guess I, I kind of laugh at it a little bit, but I, one thing that you've brought up multiple times is you feel like I have an obligation to others in this space, in the bird dog world to explain things. And that's one part of my struggle with the TV show is we work with editors that are taking clips and and the, at the end of the day, I need to look at them and say, you can't use this cutaway shot of a dog running and then a bird flushing because the reality was that bird didn't flush until I flushed the bird and the dog was standing there. But sometimes depending, because in their mind, they're like, oh no, we need this. And I, I'm getting long-winded right now, John, but I guess um, it's, it's difficult for me to always control all these situations out there in the field. And a lot of times then it, it ends up with us showing something that experts like yourself, or not necessarily experts, but educated dog handlers would say, big no-no, big no-no. And I now grasp it in ways that I never grasped before. Is that fair to, to say? Absolutely. And, 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 you know, if I think when the, the situation is questionable, you can mention, just make a quick mention that either what actually happened or you know, I realize you shouldn't do this. Um, I, several years ago, there's another TV hunting host, podcast host, who I will not name, uh, had several instances on his television program where his dog went on point on a pheasant. He was walking up to the dog, and before he got to the dog, the dog flushed the pheasant. They shot the pheasant. And the dog retrieved it, and the handler praised, praised, and praised the dog, and that was the end. Now, if he would just have stopped and said, you should not shoot a bird that your dog flushes after it's on point. But my feeling is there are lots of first-year pointing dog owners in the audience using that as an example, and I just hate to see that. Yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. I think what um, I've taken from my experiences will hopefully show up because you're seeing, you know, on the TV screen, everything from a year ago, essentially, because the way we have to film it and then air it on the network. So I'm hoping that my progression that I've learned, you know, because how would I know some of this until I've failed and learned, right? 
now I think a lot of that you're going to start to see through in the coming, you know, the current season that will be airing starting in July here on the Outdoor Channel. Um, but a lot of times, John, on the TV side of it, if you break down a segment between commercial breaks, you're looking at like four to five minutes. An explanation given incorrectly or without enough information is probably more damaging sometimes than not bringing it up at all. So there's a, there's a balance that I'm trying to work through in that in four minutes or five minutes of time, I'm trying to inspire people to get out in the field. I'm trying to tell a story, trying to do things the best way I can. And I, I totally raise my hand and say I make a lot of mistakes out there. But the problem is to really dissect dog training requires so much information that 20 minutes of content might not be enough to work through a scenario that plays out from what I've learned and the trainers like George Lyle that have come alongside and, and taught me. So I guess that's kind of my response to some of the, um, the errors in, in how some dogs, the other thing, or in how some dogs uh, handle a bird in the field and how a handler like myself or somebody else um, then praises the dog. The other thing I'll say too is that these scenarios that, others people are put into are really high stress or high pressure for them. We're coming out and filming a story with them. This might be a once in a lifetime opportunity. They want to show the best that they can. They want their dog to be a star on TV. They are full of pressure because it's a wild bird and a wild place that they can't control. And so there's so many uncontrollables that happen that sometimes it doesn't always um the reality of that scenario might be missed because they're focused on the camera guy saying, hold on, I need to put a new battery in for audio or things like that. So we, it's the reality of what's happening out there, but it's never perfect. And that's our, that's our challenge. It's, I think it's getting better. Maybe, it, maybe you'll agree or disagree, but it's a work in progress every time. And it totally depends on the people that are out there. And I am put into a position where I sometimes there's a dog out in the field that might be blowing things up and you're like, boy, we need you to put your dog up, you know, leave him at the truck on the next walk. And that's a tough thing to do. Or I don't know. I mean, the, the situations are almost countless that we've been put into. None of them ideal. In a perfect world, I could go out with maybe just my dog or one other, like, George Lyle's dogs or Ben Redigan or you know there's a handful of uh, amazing hunters and dog trainers that I've hunted with or Tyler Webster too I mean his dogs do a phenomenal job I mean I in a perfect world we're always in a perfect situation we're just never that's not the reality for what we're filming out there does any of that make sense John am I just babbling no I understand I trust you and 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 trust me I have sympathy for your situation who John who taught you? Who was the first person that showed you a bird dog? Who's the first person that explained some of the do's and don'ts? Uh, the, when I got my first dog, I don't think there were many people that told me what to do other than go hunting. But uh, it, after the first year, I, I was 
uh, I watched a field trial and I got to know a, a pro trainer and I went out and watched him train and then eventually trained with him. And I think that's when I learned most of what I know. Just watching. Yeah, and then doing it with him, training with him. Yeah, that's why the, the value of a good mentor, somebody that lets you walk it with them, is so, oh, can't be overstated. Why, John, I got to ask, you give me a lot of criticism or critique. Why don't you take more people hunting? Because I'm selfish. Fair. I, I enjoy, Blunt and fair, yeah. I enjoy the experience myself, and I have, in past years, taken people hunting over my dog, but I think I can only name two instances when I ever hunted with anyone that had their dog with them. I'm just not willing to deal with all of that. <laughs> well, then I'll say... I'm trying to work through things on my end and teach people from my mistakes and failures and, and inspire them to get out and bring more people hunting and help train other people's dogs. You have all this information that, aside from sharing with me and probably some other people that you've helped along the way, like there are so many people that could benefit from your wisdom if they walked in your shoes, right? Yes, but I have I have a, a coop full of pigeons and I have a fenced five acres. And I've had a lot of, in fact, I have two right now with uh, young pointing dogs that come over to my place and, you know, we're breaking, worried about their response to the shotgun and dealing with that and little things around here. And when all that happens, I'm trying to tell them about, you know, that first year don't shoot at any birds unless your dog points them and holds them. And that's the, that's the big golden rule. And, and I've tried to, to impart that to quite a few other people. One thing that I think, and this is now getting off topic again, but you can't, what, have you, what are your recommendations to them if their dog creeps? If it's the first year, I would let the dog creep until it stood, and once it stands and I walk in to flush the bird, if it continued to, to creep, I would just stop and stand there. I hadn't taught the dog, whoa, anything like that. If it's the second year, I would that dog has already been taught, whoa, and it would get a little shock. But I have heard from many dog trainers that you never stop creep because when you do it then they're waiting for that stimulation to stop every time i think and, and i can't ever recall doing this but i don't think i think when i see the creep um i think the dog's going to eventually get in there and flush the bird and and you may be correct with that assumption. Uh, I don't know. I I field trialed a lot, and the field trialers are very harsh in their judgment over a dog that goes on point and then creeps. When I'm in the field with experienced dogs, that dog has the right to relocate on its own. If those birds are moving and it needs to relo relocate because it needs better scent, 
that's up to the dog. That's fine with me. Just so long as the birds don't flush. And if they flush on a creep, you do not shoot. That's right. There it is. So you mentioned trials. What benefit do handlers have by entering trials that you've seen over your years? Let's just say well, hunting they're, dogs. That they're, they're, they're regular hunting dogs. Uh, maybe it's just giving them extra time working in the field with their dog. But is there more than that? Yeah, you train you train a bit more vigorously and thoroughly. And and the biggest advantage I see for some people, since my dogs learn to back at a young age and everything's fine, they'll always back in a field trial. That's something that a lot of people have to teach their dog if they've just hunted one dog. And the big thing for me is you have to teach stop to flush. And I worked a great deal harder on that when I had field trial dogs. And my field trial dogs were much better at stop to flush than my present dogs. I have to reinforce with a shock collar sometimes on stop to flush. You know, that's when they don't have scent, the birds fly, they need to stop. When the dog goes on point, if I'm behind the dog, walking up, to flush the birds. I don't get to the dog yet and the birds flush early and I can't shoot at them. Um, that dog needs to stand there. Uh, that, that's a version of stop to flush. And if that dog goes without me either stepping by the dog or shooting, then I have to correct that. Gotcha. Uh, we have a listener question here that pertains to this time of the year right now. Andrew writes in, I would like to know what the best kind of training is during the off-season. I emailed in earlier in the year for tips with my yellow lab puppy to help keep him active and bird ready. What are some things I could do? I know of places here in northeastern Wyoming that have pigeons you can buy for training. I listen to your podcast and watch your hunting videos religiously. Any advice would be much appreciated. John, I'm going to put you on the spot. This is a yellow lab puppy. And this owner, handler, is looking for ways to train during the off-season. What would you do? Well, number one, I'm not experienced at all with flushing. Dogs. I knew you were going to take the easy route out there. <laughs> no, I said but. But there you go. As far as training with birds, I really don't know. But I know the more you have the dog in the field, whether it be during hunting season or not, just running it and getting that dog to respond to you, I would imagine with a flushing dog, the big thing they're trying to teach is staying in range. Mm -hmm. And that would be a good time of year to teach that. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm with you. I, I only know pointing, uh, pointing dog training. So that's where my head goes to. But I tell people this because I've been told this so many times too. Don't worry about the birds. Your dog knows what a bird smells like, knows what that smell is, and will never forget that smell. Focus on your foundation. Stand still. Go with me, come back to me, and work that over and over and over, the repetition of that. Because then when you are out in the field and you do go for walks, you can reinforce that. The bird smell does not go away. The instinct, if it's a flushing dog, to go up and flush that. But again, you, you want your dog to be under control. And you don't need to go get pigeons to do that. You don't need to have you know, a reserve that you're going to again and again. I've done it in my backyard. 
I do it in the neighborhood park. I go for walks out in fields. I ask farmers, do you mind if I can take my dog for a walk out here? You've got big open area. I want to let her range. I want her to focus. And honestly, right now, the lakes are frozen. So I'm training with her out on the open frozen lakes here in Minnesota. I'm giving her the command to go. She starts running. She's about 600 yards. And I go, and it carries across that open lake. She hears it. And she sees that I've taken a hard left. Now she's got to run 800 yards to get in front of me. But that's the whole point is she's to go with me. So you use what you have access to, in my opinion, to enforce and reinforce the foundation. And I think I'm always going to go back to that because I've seen it work. I've learned. Oh, John, I've learned a lot in my couple of years. You've got a lot more than I do. But I think in 40 years from now, I'll be able to look back on this journey and speak very bluntly like you have as to what to do and what not to do. Because honestly, it's been people like you that have given me feedback that I need to hear. So when I say you're my harshest critic, you might be my best as well, John. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, I, and I do repeat, you have also sent some heartwarming messages along the way. Some things that I've done well that you have enjoyed. So I appreciate that. Brandon, anything to add to today's program? <laughs> no no there's there's a lot of good information that john has shared with us john best of luck in your off-season training and for many more years i have tried to come out and hunt with you but you refuse to hunt with another person so i don't know that it'll ever happen well you know my my big reason for that is you gotta like you said earlier you gotta worry about the weather you got to worry about whether you're going to get into birds and all that sort of thing. And I'm a worry wart. I would worry the entire time before that happens about whether things were going to go correctly. So that was my reasoning. Okay, so then I'm going to challenge you, John. I'm going to challenge you to, to fight through all of those worries and say... I think I'm going to do it in spite of all of the reasons why I don't want to, because you don't know who's watching, John, and you don't know the impact you might have on their journey in life. If you don't put yourself out there, you'll never, you'll never find out. But as you said previously, what goes on the screen sometimes isn't exactly what you want to portray as far as handling the dog. And heck, I could be sending out some negative messages. Wouldn't it be something if I found you in the wrong and aired it on national television, John? <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. I wouldn't. I always try my best to make sure everyone is shown in the correct positive light. And sometimes I fail. And sometimes I get called on it. And that's the whole moral of today's story. John, if you change your mind, I'll come out and film a TV show with you up in the Chucker Country in Oregon. It would be... It would be very cool to see the piece of paradise, the camper that you camp in up there, and the journey you go um, at 80 years of age. That's impressive, my friend. Very impressive. Keep it up. And we'll try to continue to put together content that's helpful, inspiring, and we'll talk about the mistakes we've made along the way. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. Flush Podcast.